Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski. I'm an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that'll inspire you to love yourself. Hey, self-lovers. Today's podcast is a no-bullshit type of conversation. So I'm going to give you a no-bullshit introduction to our guest today. Our guest today is Sirut Chawla, who is a psychotherapist and cultural commentator based in London. This conversation is about the downsides and even the dangers of, quote, Insta therapy, which is basically like these viral posts that you see on the internet. They're often about mental health and giving people some sort of diagnosis or just really boiling down huge, intricate, nuanced mental health topics into a little thread or slideshow. And of course, it's captivating and it's shareable and this stuff goes viral. And then a lot of people tend to like misdiagnose themselves or just absorb a message that isn't necessarily helpful to themselves and the people around them. And this is what Sirut has a problem with. So I'm warning you that this conversation will definitely challenge you. You're going to have to keep an open mind and think critically and just reevaluate what you've been taught. We're not trying to convince you of anything, just trying to share a different perspective or something you may not have thought about before. So in this episode, you will learn what ideas about mental health have been popularized on social media that are actually unethical and harmful. You'll also hear about how cultural differences impact our view of mental health. So a lot of things that we talk about in the West isn't necessarily the reality for so many people, billions and billions of people that live differently and may actually like their lifestyle and opinions and approaches to things. And also Sirut talks to us about what trauma is and what it actually is not. I don't want to give much more than this away because I highly invite you to listen to this conversation. There are moments that are deep and a little dark, so I'm going to put a little minor trigger warning on this, although (laughs) it's so funny that I'm saying that because the whole conversation is really about taking responsibility for your own feelings and we don't have to be tiptoeing over our words and putting trigger warnings on everything. Like Obviously, you're listening out of your own free will. But for the sake of mentally preparing you for what you're about to hear, I hope that you enjoy this conversation regardless of whether or not you agree with this hot take. So take what resonates and leave the rest. You can follow Sirut on Instagram at Sirut K. Chawla and you can sign up for her Substack and the link is in the description of this podcast episode. And as always, if you enjoy this conversation, please share it on social media and tag me at Mary's Podcast and at Sirut K. Chawla. We love to see that you are listening. Sirut, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really looking forward to chatting to you, especially you specifically, because initially, you know, if you just look at both our pages, they're really quite different. But clearly there's something that resonates for both of us. So I thought it would be a really interesting and cool conversation. Thank you for saying that. I honestly didn't know that you followed me until you shared 
that video I made. Remember the one that was like, when people say you don't look Russian, <laughs> and then I did that like that was amazing. funny grandma dance. Yeah. When you shared that, I was like fangirling a little bit because I didn't know that you were following me at that point. Oh yeah, I loved that. I think I noticed that you were following me and I checked out your page and I thought, oh, she seems really nice. I think I'll follow along. And I did. And then I really liked that video. I loved you poking fun at that. I loved the irreverence of it and the humor. And yeah, I really loved that, actually. Oh, thank you. Like we were talking about before we started recording, (laughs) my best friend asked me, she's like, if you didn't care what anybody thought, what would you post? Because obviously I get so in my head growing up on the internet. I mean, I've been on Instagram almost 10 years and probably eight of them were like seriously because before the account I have now, I had like a fitness page. And so I feel like I subconsciously police myself and the content that I create. And one thing that I think most people don't know about me unless they spend a lot of time listening to the podcast or hanging out with me in person is that I feel like I'm a lot funnier. (laughs) (laughs) that I will ever let myself be on Instagram because humor tends to offend some people. Mm. Like that video, for example, my Instagram audience knows me. Like they know my heart, but it went viral on TikTok. There's almost a million views on it. So it's people who don't know anything about me. And there were so many things that they were criticizing. There's hundreds of comments on there of people just picking me apart. And then during the recent Putin's war, TikTok did another push of the video because I guess it was like related content because it was Russian related. And people are just like tearing me apart as if I started this war. So it's crazy because even something like that, that brought so much joy to people and to me making it, it just, it, it puts you in this bind. There are a lot of creators or people on the internet or people who just exist where it's like, I can't even express myself anymore because of the amount of what would you call that it's well it's scrutiny I think that's the the amount of scrutiny but I think the responses to that particular TikTok they hold up a mirror to a lot of the cultural issues that I touch on as well but I think that are plaguing us if you take that kind of objectively it's just a video it's a funny video made by somebody with Russian ethnicity, poking fun at yourself and poking fun at sort of the people who police you, right? So the central, let's say, pillar of that video is poking fun at the people who police you. And what it elicited was even more policing. The fact that, you know, people are offended that a Russian person is poking fun at people who police her Russian ethnicity. And then the kind of polarization, black and white, you know, mob dogpiling stuff we deal with on social media. The fact that TikTok did a push of it. And that's interesting because it's like, why would you push that? You know, what's the purpose of pushing that? Is that an algorithm thing? And what's happening there? And the fact that people attack you because you have a Russian background, like, do you have a brain? And that's the whole issue. You know, we're like Pavlov's dogs. We see something and then you salivate and attack, right? It's just across the board. The fact that social media has become our third place, that's where we're having so many really, really important conversations. And look how we're having those conversations. 
screeching, screaming, attacking. Yeah. Getting around to get people fired, harassing people to the point that they have mental health crises and breakdowns. Yeah, that's. I think the response to that video is is really, really telling. Really telling. I haven't even thought about the algorithm aspect because the truth is it was well-received before the war. And then after TikTok did a push of it, I don't know, were people searching for more Russian content? Were people, you know, looking up in the TikTok explore page, you know, just trying to see? Because, you know, there's a lot of stuff going trending of like what life is like. People are curious and I get that. So it could be like a combination of, of both like TikTok as a corporation and just as an algorithm feeding what people want to see and are searching for. There's a lot going on there, but I haven't even thought about that because it was definitely a huge difference. I mean, it went from like, you know, people of immigrant descent from all sorts. I mean, I'm assuming that's why it resonated with you too. (laughs) You know, just laughing at it and thinking about how ridiculous. Obviously, I made it outrageous for a reason. And it was also like a TikTok trend. Like, I can't say it was a completely original idea. People were doing this to describe many of their life and experiences. And then, yeah, it's like after the war, it was like, just being attacked as if I'm the one who started it. Luckily, I'm not super attached to TikTok, so it didn't affect my mental health that much because I'm just not as active on there and it's easy for me to ignore. But Instagram, you know, it's my livelihood. It's everything I've built and been working on. So I'm wondering from your perspective and your work as a therapist, what do you think are the biggest drawbacks of not just the internet and the way we consume it, but the things that we learn on there. For example, a lot of Insta therapy, right? Like the therapists that we follow on Instagram or a lot of activist accounts. Because I've truthfully learned so much from people who are just kind enough to share what they believe. What do you think is the dark side of that and the way we we learn and consume. It's funny you mentioned that because I'm literally about to publish an article. I've just started a substack to kind of look at these themes more. The title is Insta Therapy, Is It Helping or Hurting? And there are positives and I don't think we should ignore those. Well, we don't ignore them because we act like Insta Therapy is sort of some kind of response to the mental health crisis. And I think it's a manifestation of the mental health crisis. The fact that there's therapists on there trying to get Insta-famous and selling merchandise and dancing and prancing and trying to get clout. I think what initially started as a much smaller number of therapists on there trying to share, I guess, mental health information, psychoeducation, clinical experience, personal stuff it's now become a way for therapists to you know insta fame is available to therapists now so it's attracting a different kind of person and it's become a very oversaturated niche i think just the information overload the level of is this wrong with you is that wrong with you if you do this it means this if you do that it means trauma if you do something else you have panic disorder your partner is not doing this, your partner is doing that, on and on and on and on. I've muted so many of those accounts because I just, I can't bear 
to scroll through my feed and just see this is wrong with you, that's wrong with you, here's a list of symptoms. I think it's it's so unhelpful. So I think the information overload, the fact that people are condensing, you know, like prepackaged little sort of, let's say, packets of insight that may or may not apply to you aren't actually helpful. It depends. I mean, there are some genuinely talented people on there who share things that make you think and are thought-provoking and sometimes make something, you know, you have an aha moment, something clicks into place. But there are a lot of people who do the opposite, right? They make you think it's not something that clicks into place, it introduces an idea that really shouldn't be there. Like thinking that your normal life experiences mean that you're traumatized or there's something wrong with your partner your relationship isn't good enough all of a sudden because somebody on instagram told you a relationship you were previously really happy with or i think this is another thing people bringing their personal stuff into it and presenting it as therapy i think there's nothing wrong with sharing your opinions but don't pretend it's therapy or psychotherapeutic, or psychology, or people using their licenses to legitimize really weird fringe ideas like low vibration emotions, or do you know what I mean? It's rubbish. And I think we have a lot of that. People saying, you're addicted to your emotions, for example. There's no evidence for that. No one's addicted to their emotions. Or yeah, there's so much. I could just sit, spend this whole podcast saying, this isn't true, and that's not true, and this isn't true. <laughs> and I'll probably direct people to the article for that. But yeah, there's there are very real pros and cons. The one that I think is really interesting at the moment is the aspect of parasocial relationships with therapists. I think there's something there that could be a really big ethical problem. So I think for your listeners to understand why these things matter, it's worth understanding what therapy is. Is it okay if I kind of explain that briefly? Yeah, please. And could you also, for me and my ESLness, define what parasocial relationship is? Because that word came up recently in another conversation I was having, and I nodded my head and pretended like I knew what it was, and I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. So therapy is completely private. It's just between you and your therapist. Your therapist will never tell anybody else what you say to them. It's completely confidential. The only times a therapist might break confidentiality is if they're worried you're going to hurt yourself, you're worried you might hurt somebody else, if a child is in danger, or if it's something like breaking the terrorism act, or you've said I'm going to do something really illegal, and then of course a therapist is obliged to break confidentiality in those. But other than that, which almost never comes up, right? It's completely private and confidential. And psychotherapy is not something that you do out of a manual. It's not like if you have, I don't know, some of the content on Instagram is so farcical. Like if you sneeze at 6pm, it means that you have generalized anxiety disorder. It's just we're so <laughs> stupid. So therapy does not work like that. It's not that you come into the session and you say, I have anxious attachment, can you fix me? Which is what insta-therapy makes people think. The first thing an actual therapist would do is say, what do those words mean to you? What does that look like for you in your life? Because we use this jargon that we don't always understand and something else completely different happening for us. 
And therapy with each client is always different. It's not the same because each person is different. So it's very contextualized. It's individual contextualized and it's a relationship. It's a really intimate, close relationship. And the kind of, the relationship is the basis of the work. And while it's a very intimate and close relationship, it's unlike other relationships because say in a normal relationship that we're used to, normal social relationships, something will happen that might feel a bit awkward or there's some unexpressed anger or some lack of clarity. And either you sweep it under the rug or you go past it or maybe you have a big blow up about it or you don't even, you know, you might understand it later or you don't understand it at all. And in therapy, each time anything like that happens, you stop and you look at it really closely. And that's what the work is. The stuff that happens between you and your therapist is really important information for the stuff that's happening within you. So that's what traditional psychotherapy is. And then there's lots and lots of different modalities and ways to approach it. But that's the, let's say, baseline. So very private, very individual, completely contextualized. And your therapist is bound by ethics you know, a good therapist will not come in with preconceived notions like the client has said they have this anxious or I'm saying those because that's the most popular thing on Instagram is attachment. People have really glommed onto that. So I'm going to perform these steps, one, two, three, four, five, and the patient or the client is cured. It just doesn't work that way because people have different backgrounds, cultures, personal histories, personality styles, ways of relating, even attachment styles, different sort of patterned responses that everyone's family of origin fucks us up in our own special way. That comes into it, whether you're an immigrant or not. And that would be a really important factor, let's say, for a therapist who's going to see you, because of course that's going to impact your worldview. So when you understand what therapy is, insta-therapy is obviously not therapy. And I think hopefully most therapists understand this, but I don't think most consumers of this content understand this. I think most consumers of this content think that having the knowledge and applying it to yourself somehow is equivalent to therapy, and it's not. And then it gets even more tricky when that knowledge is actually often misinformation and really bad knowledge inaccurate stuff, decontextualized, and sometimes it's just the therapist's personal experience they've decided is the cure for the whole world. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on. And then there's other things that come into it, like what happens when a therapist becomes an influencer? What happens with your ethics there? And therapy, of course, is never performed in public on social media to a huge audience. And again, I imagine these are fairly obvious things for most people, but then you have therapists who are doing things like telling their followers, I love you and you're worthy and I see you and I'm your biggest supporter. It all gets into a very ethical grey area because, again, if you think about what therapy is, this is something else altogether and it's not therapeutic, it's just, it's pseudo-therapeutic. And a parasocial relationship is a relationship that we've all experienced. It's not a bad thing in itself. It's a relationship you have with like a media figure or celebrity or musician or even now an influencer where you know them or you think you know them. They don't know you exist. 
So one of the articles I read when I was researching this article was, it's like when you watch Friends and you think you're part of the gang, like you're one of the Friends. The Friends don't know you exist. The Friends don't even exist. It's a fictional Friends gang. And you're having these whole emotional reactions and feelings and thoughts and the show might have like important meaning in your life that's fine that's not a bad thing but it's not a real relationship it's a parasocial meaning completely one-sided and uh so we all have it with celebrities you read articles about them you read the gossip columns you read what's being said on social media you think you know this person because you watch their movies and shows and listen to their music but of course you don't know them, because nobody can be condensed down into a few articles or even hundreds and thousands of articles. You don't know the person unless you know the person. And I think we can attest to that as some people on a much you know, smaller level experience something like that, where people think they know us, and of course they don't know us. You put a few sentences or a picture or something on the internet, of course you don't know who I am or who you are based on that. And they're people that do think they do. They really do. They think they know you. They think based on the bit of information you've put out there that they understand who you are, what your motivations are. Sometimes they fixate on you. Sometimes there's expectations that you'd have from a real relationship, like you owe me responses, you owe me your time, you know, all those sorts of things that, you know, that happen that this should be a two-way street. And those don't apply to a parasocial relationship because you're asking for those things from someone who doesn't even know your name or that you exist. So with an influencer, it's almost even a bit trickier because it's easier to create the illusion that it's a real relationship because there's a bit of interaction, right? Mm -hmm. You like the comment or you reply to the comment or, you know, something in the stories or the DMs or whatever people do, there's a little bit of interaction. And that little bit of interaction people can project onto. You don't know how someone's going to take it because you're not that person and you don't know them either. So I think it gets a really kind of tricky when this kind of relationship is happening with therapists. That seems like a big ethical issue, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, as somebody who's on the other side, and literally just this morning, I got four DMs from the same person saying, I really need to talk to someone and none of my friends are responding. Do you have a minute? And I just, I don't answer that. And I get that so much. Yeah. If my therapist was public on Instagram, like a lot of therapists are, I would probably feel really uncomfortable about it. Not because of the message necessarily, but I just don't want to know that much about my therapist. Like I delight in just knowing the fact that my therapist is engaged. You know, that was like a big piece of information that I felt honored to know because we've been working with each other for two and a half years. I don't need to know about my therapist's sex life. I don't need to know their opinion on certain global issues. Truly. I mean, there are some that will be deal breakers, but we talk about that, like you said, in context, in therapy, in an actual yeah. boundary full like scenario. And so I, I'm wondering, do you practice? Yes, I do. This is the real issue, actually. So one, I want to be really clear that I don't exclude myself from this criticism. I'm a therapist on Instagram too. I'm not better than anybody else. I'm not trying to disparage anyone, but I really think it's important that we do look at these issues and stop 
pretending they don't exist because being on Instagram is lucrative and gives you fake internet points. How do I navigate it? So there, there are a few things. One, I'm very, very careful about taking clients that come through social media. So I'd probably do a much longer assessment with them than I would with somebody who's not come through social media and doesn't know I have an Instagram page or whatever. So usually people do one intake session. I don't like to work that way. I like to see, can I really help this person? Do I think what they're bringing and what they're asking for and the goals they have, do I think I can actually help? If not, I don't see them. If I think I can help them, I will see them. Usually it's a session or two with people that come through social media that agree to work with or even initially see. I'll do a few more sessions. And there are some people who really only want to see you because they think you're famous and they want a famous therapist. And that's fine. That's actually quite rich clinical information about them, but that's not necessarily always conducive to the work I want to do. I tend to block clients from all social media and ask them to block me. It's usually yeah, one or the other, one, one blocks the other, while we're working together because that forms a dual relationship. And they don't need to know that anything about them, which is also why when you said before we started recording, it's nice to actually see my face and I don't show so much of myself. And there's a reason for that. Well, there are a few reasons, but one of the reasons is that I'm careful and think twice about what I share about myself personally on the internet because I have clients that I see and I'm kind of mindful that they're going to see these things and it's what they don't need to think those things about me. And of course, it's going to, you know, contribute to the work. And in therapy, you want whatever happens between, you know, you and the client to happen in the work, in the session, not that the client is having a separate relationship with you based on your social media presence and having thoughts and feelings outside of the session that then impact the work and impact how you can help them. So, I used to have this thought that, yeah, it's just fine for clients to follow me. And if something comes up from what I post, bring it to the session. I actually don't think that's tenable. I don't think that's in the client's best interest. So I've changed that completely. And it's if you're going to work with me, one of the conditions is you need to block me from everything or I block you. Hey, myself lovers, before we go on with today's podcast episode, I want to make sure that you are giving yourself the gift of self-love. The Gift of Self-Love is a book I wrote to help you build confidence, recognize your worth, and learn to finally love yourself. And it's available in stores and online worldwide. So go pick it up if you don't have it already. And if you do have it, little reminder to make sure that you are reading it and doing that work in the workbook. I poured my heart and soul into this book, compiling everything I teach at my retreats and everything we talk about on the podcast and putting it into this heartfelt, relatable, and actionable workbook for you. The cool thing is this book is a combination of me sharing everything that's helped me on my self-love journey, and it's also a workbook, so you can actually write in it and put the tools into practice right away. So it's a very integrative experience, similar to what it would be like if you came to a retreat and we were doing a workshop in person. These exercises are all in one place for you. There are quizzes, 
journal prompts, self-reflection exercises, self-love challenges, all of which will help you with body acceptance, mindset and self-talk, confidence and self-worth. So if you haven't gotten it yet, you can get it today by going to maryscupoftea.com slash book. You can also search for it on Amazon or at your favorite bookstore. And please take a second to check out all the amazing reviews. At this point, the book has reached thousands of people all around the world. And these reviews are so, so special to me. They literally make me cry when I read them. And I hope that this book has the same profound impact on you. So go to maryscupoftea.com slash book and give yourself the gift of self-love. Yeah, I think an industry that's that people are not considering, which I advise a lot of young people to at least look into, as it will be booming in the 10, 20 years to come, is tech ethicists. Oh, God, I know. Yes, it's such a huge thing. Right. You know, like I've been looking at it from the point of therapy, but yes, Jesus Christ. And people who spill all their guts on social media and thinking, are you sure you want this out there? In 20 years, it's still going to be out there. You need to be thinking this through. Mm-hmm. Very mindfully. And well, there are people at, you know, Facebook, Instagram, all these companies that are, I mean, at a certain point, forced by social or even maybe legal to come to hire people to think about, like, okay, what should we allow? What should we, how do we approach this? You know, even, yeah. even something like there, I mean, mental health is so, 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 so serious. And <laughs> Insta therapy makes it seem like people can be diagnosed by a meme or a chart. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I wouldn't even say it is serious, actually. You're right. It is serious because there are people who are really very unwell and really suffer and their whole lives are blighted by an illness. And that's not a joke. That's something that's, that's actually has a lot of gravity to it. And there's another group that also is attracted to therapy that is not unwell in the same. We call them the worried well. So it's the people that kind of, you know, more attracted to wellness culture, let's say, more than sort of mental health work. So, you know, you get like all, there's all kinds of therapists who do all kinds of work. And there's all kinds of client groups who have different different things that they would like to work on or need help with or they're presenting problems. And one of those groups is the people that make a lifestyle out of, you know, this amorphous concept of healing and make a lifestyle out of wellness culture. I feel called out. <laughs> <laughs> no, truth, in all seriousness, I recently redid my website and a lot of the information pages for my retreats to take out words like healing because mm. I finally read that and it'll be there in some minor ways but I'm not going to be advertising it as a as a healing thing right because that's actually illegal to promise that I don't remember where I read mm. that or what the exact what that actually says but I think it's with the word transformation which comes up in the coaching industry a lot it's illegal yeah. to promise people a result that they <laughs> might not get don't even get me started on the coaching oh, God. <laughs> we will be here for hours because I've seen the depths of it and I was thinking about you know how do I do what I do and not pretend like I'm a therapist yeah 
well, there's, it's not that there's all bad, because some coaches that are really great and what the coaches do is different to what therapists do. Coaches tend to take something quite specific and then work with you much more directively. And that's when they do what therapists are not supposed to do, which is here are the instructions and I go and do this. And, you know, I have steps and I have a system and I have a whatever, which is kind of different. Or, you know, it's more of a not to disparage any coach in any way, I just can't think of a better way to put it, but like a paid friend who kind of cheers you on. So I think that can happen as well. And they're coaches that do actually really important and helpful things like helping people run their businesses with integrity, for example. So what therapy helps you with is internal psychological change. A therapy goal wouldn't be, I want my business to hit 100k by the end of the year. That would not be a therapy. A therapy goal wouldn't be, I want to find a boyfriend. <laughs> but those could be coaching goals. So a coaching goal is something that happens outside of you in the world. And therapy facilitates you to get to the place where maybe you'd want to go and pursue those things or something internal and psychological or whatever. And I've seen coaches that help people with dating. I think that seems important because there seem to be people that really don't have very good relationship skills or are shy or need some empowering or just a bit of, I don't know, just a bit of cherishing and a bit of cheering on. I'm trying to think of all the people I follow that are coaches and there's all kinds of people and they do really, they are helpful and they take a specific thing like confidence or empowerment or, you know, even helping influencers like how to make content and be yourself. And there's all kinds of people. And it's not to say they're all unethical or bad people. They're not. They're helpful and they're, they're filling a need that's out there that people have. But they're also people, I think, when something like wellness on Instagram has exploded the way it has over the last few years, you create a safe haven for predatory and exploitative people. And there are a lot of those. And people who are not coaches that stay in their own lane and not therapists who stay in their own lane, but they try to do something else. And like coaches who are like, I'm a trauma healer. No, you're fucking not. And you need to like stop that shit because someone could get really hurt. Or therapists who, I don't know, I'm not going to say anything too much about therapists because I don't want them to come for me yet again. But <laughs> Have they come for you oh, before? Jesus, yeah. Oh my God. I got chills when you said like, no, you're fucking not. Please stop. You're hurting people. Yeah. I can't believe that more people don't have, not even the courage, it shouldn't be courageous, the critical thinking skills to be like, hey, um, you're not qualified. Um, yeah. You can't, you know, plant medicine your way into Jesus healing Christ. from your assault, you know? Like this makes me so infuriated. So yeah. think of it this way. Instagram is conditioned people little by little into thinking that plant medicine is some revolutionary thing that's going to change your life. So you kind of get people used to the idea, right? So what they do is they slowly get people used to ideas, plant medicine. They don't tell you about the people who end up having psychotic breaks because of the plant medicine or people who've got like long-term issues or, you know, whatever, things that are really serious adverse reactions. And then they tell you, I'm going to help you be your most confident self. That prays to people who are really insecure and really desperately want that. So then they listen to them. And then you get somebody else who you're acclimatizing people to these ideas. And then they do it little by little by little until eventually you find that it's normalized and okay for some fucking nutcase to be telling people, 
I'm completely unqualified. Pay me like five grand and I'm going to give you drugs. It's like, are you fucking all right? Like, this is, it's, it's unreal. Sorry, when I get yeah. angry. <laughs> yeah. Now, in a relationship, that would be considered abuse. You know, that's exactly what narcissistic abuse is, right? Where you get yeah. people to accustomed to a certain norm. Absolutely. And there's a lot of narcissism. Then there's, there's healthy narcissism. And I suspect both of you, you and I have some of that. And the healthy narcissism is when you can kind of see the good in yourself and you think, okay, I'm going to go and take on something big and I'm going to work on that. So all narcissism isn't bad. It's yet another social media thing that people have got wrong. But then there's also people who are grandiose narcissists, like the people who think that by putting content on Instagram, they're going to revolutionize the mental health field you know, completely out of touch with reality. And then there are vulnerable narcissists who think that just by talking about themselves all day long, you know, that kind of self-obsession and the woundedness and oversharing it, but then telling themselves and other people that it's altruism, like I'm doing this to help you, you know, my self-obsession helps you. So the vulnerable narcissism. So there's a lot of like personality pathology playing out there as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. On a personal note, just my take on it is that there's some incredible like physician assisted plant medicine microdosing based on yeah. decades of academic research. And I always yeah. remind myself, like I have a really good friend, the friend that I always reference. She is just so grounded. She's not on social media anymore, even though she used to have a buttload of YouTube followers. But after she had a child, it just didn't resonate with her anymore. I think children change a lot for people. Definitely. Yeah. And I'm so grateful for her and keeping me grounded because she always asks me like, okay, well, who do you admire most? And most of the people I list, they're not celebrities or influencers or anybody of that nature. It's usually like some academic researcher that nobody knows even exists, you know, love Brene Brown, love her, but there are plenty of other people who do yeah. work like that, that pave the way or activists who are deep in their work doing things that you will never even hear of you will never even know their name or economists who help change public policy in a real way not just outrage yeah on social media like I always try to listen to their interviews whether it's on a podcast or read their books like come on let's read people's books mm -hmm. <laughs> you know and it definitely makes me think about where I'm at and where I want to be long-term and ethics is always on the forefront of my mind. And I continuously oscillate between like wanting to share my message online and do it the way I've been doing. And also like some of my content lately, I feel like has been almost more like just lifestyle because I don't want to cross the boundary. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I kind of like almost want to play it safe and I don't. And so it's constantly like I'm teetering back and forth. I mean, well, to address the first point, which was about the plant medicine or hallucinogenics or psychedelics, there is very good research and the trials and there's serious people working on this stuff. And some of the stuff around psilocybin is so promising and exciting and it could make a massive, massive difference to to people's mental health and you know even just there's there's so much that we can go 
for people listening, go look it up and <laughs> and check. Like even here in London, there's trials in Imperial College that are really fascinating. That following for a while, and when it's done properly, and you're being supervised, completely different to a coach taking you know hiring an Airbnb and giving you drugs. That's not the same thing. Yeah, don't do that. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and, and the other point about the ethics and stuff, I think I want to be careful not to overstate it in the sense that I don't want to be giving people the idea that they can't say anything. Of course you can. But there has to be some sort of self-regulation. And if you are in a profession and you're representing your profession, you need to not just be thinking about clout and the money you can make. You also need to be thinking about the people that are following you because you are that profession unless you kind of I don't know clarify like sometimes people clarify and say I'm not just posting about therapy or now I've put up a in my disclaimer highlights I've said I'm not a mental health account because I talk about other stuff I talk about culture quite a lot but I still have to bear in mind that I am a therapist and it doesn't matter how many times you clarify it so this is the line you have to walk because all you can do is clarify what you need to and then Ultimately, people hear what they're going to hear. So that's a difficult one as well. (laughs) It's more than one thing. It's not like you have to do this and you can't do that and you have to do something else. It's like a constant walking of a line and assessing what you're doing, I think. Yeah, just being conscientious and like a good person and thinking critically about what I'm posting. I'll speak for myself, what I'm posting and also what I'm consuming and the world I want to contribute to. Mm. Does that summarize it? I think that summarizes it really well. And I love that you added the world that I want to contribute to. Because I thought it clicked in my head as you said that, that I was thinking, hmm, I think I talk a lot about the world that I would like to stop happening. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like you posted this phrase, like overcorrection. Yeah. And I actually think that in the grand scheme of things, it can serve a purpose. Because I know... Mm-hmm you were talking about it in a collective way, Mm -hmm. but I think it applies like individually. Like for example, I struggled my whole life with body image and binge eating. And there was, you know, even two years ago, my whole page was fuck dieting, fuck salads, fuck everything. (laughs) (laughs) And now I'm like, I love yoga. I go to yoga like three days a week. And, and it's not that before I was saying that, you know, I hate health, you know, although that's how people misinterpreted. But there was an air of like anybody who posted anything that I considered to be remotely healthy, I was already pissed off before Mm -hmm. even, you know, looking at it. And now I'm just at a different place. But I needed that like, like you call it overcorrection to bring me back to some kind of equilibrium and and just peace and like other people's healthy choices don't piss me off anymore. And we do need that like fight before peace and I'm not like 100% pacifist as much as I wish I could be you know I think you put that so beautifully and you're absolutely right it's true when you introduce anything new like setting boundaries for example you first start setting boundaries and you're telling every my shopkeeper you bag it this way because that is my boundary you know like <laughs> that's not a real boundary just for anyone listening who thinks I'm like troubling you know workers. <laughs> you are so funny you know you had me earlier at therapist dancing and prancing on the internet that killed me I was muted but it killed me I was cracking up <laughs> 
It's true though, and it's oh, I mean, there's nothing wrong with harmless fun, but it's like maybe one person is having harmless fun, and everybody else saw that person do well and thought, "I have to do this too." So let me also just like dance across my room and put that on the internet, and it's sort of like, is that what you want to be doing? Oh my goodness. <sighs> I do really want to talk about trauma and what it is, what it's not, the drawbacks of popularizing the belief that like everyone has trauma. But before we go into that, I think it's important 43 minutes into our conversation for us to know your background and your story and why you became a therapist and the life experience that you've had, if to the extent that you're comfortable and ethically can share, just because I think that it just adds a little bit more context. Mm-hmm. Probably would add a lot of context because I think like, it's like the people who keep calling me alt-right, it's like, I'm not alt-right, I'm fucking Indian. These are normal, like, <laughs> these are normal South Asian views. It's only in the West that you fetishize your feelings in this way. The rest of the world doesn't do that because the rest of the world has basic needs, concerns to fulfill. It's like in the West, everyone has it so good. Most people do like the laptop classes do and the people who are on Instagram making content and shouting at people and all that stuff. Like your basic needs are met. And that's why you can spend all day thinking about your feelings. That's why it's a cultural thing. It's not the same everywhere else. Other cultures have very different views on on how to manage the self mm-hmm. and stoicism. Like for all these people who call themselves culturally competent, it's like they have no idea of just the most basic cultural differences if they don't match their kind of very narrow worldview. I think that is so important. I'm sorry, I could not agree more. My therapist is Indian. I specifically looked for an immigrant therapist. Mm -hmm. I had like a clear picture in my mind. I was like, I want him to be first gen like me, but with the cultural, certain cultural values. They don't have to be the same as mine, but just so they can understand where I'm coming from when I talk about, you know, growing up in a certain way or what that's like or that, you know, my mom occasionally mocks my feelings and it's not because she's an awful human being. It's because we were raised to laugh at things like that. And I'm yeah. so grateful that my best friend is also an immigrant and she sometimes will go back and forth about how <laughs> we're upset and hurt by this and that. And then at, at the end of every conversation, one of us will say, well, we're just very lucky to have the privilege and the luxury to have the time to think so deep into this. We know. Right? When I listen to people talk about boundaries I think it especially comes up there too because, and I'm sure you could speak so much better to this, but like when I talk to my therapist about even planning my wedding, right? Like there's a difference for me and we're Jewish and a wedding is a family affair. So my boundary is not fuck everyone. I'm doing whatever I want because to me and to us and to my family, that's a big fuck you. That's like not okay, that's not a boundary. That's just you being an asshole because, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like, and I'm not going to be that way. And are there times where I need my therapist to remind me like, Hey Mary, this is your wedding. What do you really want? Is there somehow you can communicate that to grandma? Yeah, That's different than like, go 
do whatever, you know, wear this thing that's going to make grandma have a heart attack because of the amount of cleavage you're showing. Like, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) No, absolutely not. Like, there are a lot of similarities between Jewish culture and Indian culture, actually, especially in the way that, like, life revolves around the family and tradition and culture and how important those things are and how important relationships are. I think that's a really crucial difference between Western culture and Eastern or, you know, other cultures, even Eastern European, actually. Because when you don't have your basic needs met, you have to rely on other people. We've evolved in tribes and you need social cooperation and you kind of, part of the survival thing then evolves into a cultural thing. And the cultural thing is you need other people, life is centered around other people, you work together. And that obviously has drawbacks. I think the people in the West who are keep shouting and screaming for communism have no clue what the hell they're talking about and no idea what collectivism actually is. But like everything has its pros and cons. But that's one of the pros is that you have people. In the West, you don't have those same sort of basic needs issues. Like even I try to explain to my boyfriend sometimes the difference of, you know, growing up in India versus him He grew up very poor, actually, so it's not always the best example, but like growing up in the West or living in the West. And it's a different universe. Even to explain to somebody that, oh, I can't have a shower now. I have to wait till the the water comes on at 4 p.m. is when we get Mm -hmm. water. You know, like explaining that to somebody or you can't have a hot shower. Everyone has to shower. There's only this much hot water. Or Mm -hmm. if you want milk, things are different now. And things are changing and evolving and India is very rapidly grown. And I'm speaking to my experience growing up there specifically. And you didn't go to the store and buy milk. You took your pail from your house to the local milk depot. Then you bought tokens. Then you put tokens in the thingy and the thingy. The t- that's the technical term. And then you got <laughs> milk and then you bring your milk home and it's unpasteurized. So then you boil and pasteurize your milk in the house. And then you put it in like 15 different containers and then you put it in the fridge and that's how you get milk. It's a different universe or like in the summer when it's almost 50 degrees and people in school are fainting because it's that flipping hot and the power's out at home. So you're roasting and, you know, like there's so much or there was a bomb in the local market. So this month we're not going out. Just it's part of your everyday reality it's like I think to somebody who's never experienced anything of the sort it might sound like oh god that's so traumatic but when you're a kid and you're growing up with that it just becomes a fabric of your reality it is a bit scary obviously has an impact on you but it's not like you're like cowering in fear it's like oh shit a bomb has gone off you know yeah and that's what we're dealing with right now and then you find a way to adapt which is what human beings are meant to do and what we're wired for is adaptability So that's one aspect, just the difference in what a different universe it is. And those are like the most minor examples. I could go into so much more like, hopefully that gives people just a little bit to understand that it's not the same. And unless you've actually been there and experienced it, this is why the idea like lived experience actually has some utility. You have to have, just like for you, when you explain to somebody what living in Russia might have been like, you can only give them some examples. You can never explain what it was like because they just, it's a different universe. And 
at the same time, there's also like very clear social attitudes towards women and girls, as you'd imagine in an actual patriarchy, not like the way people keep talking about here, like, I can't show my boobs because it's the patriarchy, it's like, you're fine. So there's that. And then there was also a rape crisis happening as I was growing up. And it's much more reported about now, but it was happening. And it was really scary and very, very serious. And I learned from a very young age that men are not safe, they will hurt you. And they did, I've been hurt repeatedly, or I was hurt repeatedly. And you basically learn the outside world isn't safe. And there's so many things that happen, like, in general, like the safety level of the West, it's like living life on easy mode. Just being in the West after having grown up somewhere like India, it's like life on easy mode. Whereas all these basic concerns with even down to what time of the day you might be able to have a shower because of when the water comes on, down to I can't go for a walk after dark because I probably could get raped or murdered, down to this happened recently, our prime minister has demonetized all our currency. So no one has money and everyone's like literally starving until they can get the new notes because he just decided to do that to end corruption or some nonsense thing and fucked everybody up. So you have all these kinds of concerns and I really try to like help people understand that the cultural narratives that are shared and told to you that these things will help you exactly what will ruin your life. And if you actually want to help yourself, this weird victimhood hierarchy, that living in that way, listening to these ideas, completely sort of relinquishing your personal responsibility, relinquishing your sense of autonomy and agency, and your power as an adult, because you do have power as an adult. It's like putting down your armour to face the world and then saying, why is everything going wrong? Well, because you're not using what you have and you're being given really horrible advice. So I think that's partly where my perspective comes from, a lot where my perspective comes from, and why I say the things I do. It's not coming from a vacuum, not trying to be mean. I really genuinely want people to understand these things. How old were you when you came to the UK? 21. Wow. So yeah, 20-ish years. And then it was sort of starting over and it's like, oh damn, everything is so easy here. I'm free and I'm safe. When and why did you start studying psychology? And when did you become a therapist? And then when did you start sharing more of the message you share now online? So I started training to be a therapist and I think it was 2010. I think 2010. And I think I just wanted to understand myself better. I think that was the initial thing. And I think that's a very common motivation for a lot of people, which is why they say that all therapists are the craziest of everybody. everybody. <laughs> and that training was actually turned out to be really very important because part of the training in the UK is personal therapy. You're not allowed to qualify unless you're like a sorted, you know, not crazy person. Like you have to have 36 hours of therapy per year of training. And I think altogether with the different things I did, it was four and a half years or something. 
So that was a lot of therapy. When was the moment that you were like, people just all have their panties in a bunch. I gotta say something. (laughs) So in 2020, I started to see a lot of things really not okay with social justice stuff, especially. And that were really actually like a perfect mirror of what they were saying they were fighting against. And I went to Twitter because it was lockdown and the pandemic and there was nowhere to go but online. So I thought I'm going to go to Twitter because I'm sick of Instagram, sick of what's happening there. I felt like a discontentment is what it was and I was looking for something. And I found it on Twitter. I found all kinds of people with all kinds of voices and lots of them who were saying what I was thinking, which is that this shit actually isn't, is not great. And most of the people that I was following and listening to, it wasn't about addressing social inequalities. That's actually really important. It's the mechanism by which it was being done. And specifically North American progressivism and the way that that's like forced down everyone's throats. And these very specific theories and ideas that have come out of North America that are very, very Western and very sort of like just really flipping weird. And uh, some therapists found my Twitter and I wasn't tweeting in the, and like looking back on it, it was my overcorrection phase of being like, I hate everything to do with this, like all the ranting and everything. Anyway, they found it because you're not allowed to like be a person and go through a process anymore. And they cancelled me and it was pretty brutal cancellation and all the Insta therapists were like, dropped me like a hot potato (laughs) and all my friends that I talked to regularly just unfollowed me without a word and I was harassed for months and months and months on end. That was so relentless, it was across platforms, It it was like email even, like everywhere I turned, anything I did, there these people were being abusive. So that happened and I went through a few cancellations you just get to the point, I think, when you've been like slapped and slapped and slapped and slapped. We just I don't give a fuck anymore. And I think that's really what happened. I just thought I don't give a fuck anymore. You're going to hate me no matter what I say. So I might as well say what the fuck I like. And that's why I started saying what I wanted and just being more honest. And part of it was even codifying the behaviors of the people that call themselves anti-racists, but they're harassing me. And say, listen to women of color and look how they treat me. And, you know, they're hypocrites. I think it's really interesting. Like the racism I've experienced at the hands of woke white ladies is astonishing, really astonishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't feel it until, well, it's like I had a swing where I was part of the mob and then the mob came for me, not in a big way like for you. I can't even imagine. But there was a moment where suddenly I'm attacked for being Jewish or for wow. having gone to Israel at some point in my life because they're insane like you're attacking like a jewish person and you think that you're doing something virtuous Mm -hmm. like are you okay have you ever opened a history book in your life it's just it's emboldening like they talk all the time about like one of the things that they'd say to me when they were harassing me was the things you say even if they're true it doesn't matter you're going to embolden alt-right people or whatever alt-right is meant to even mean i don't think they know what anything means they just repeat what they hear and actually, no, you have been emboldened. You are the problem. You look what you're doing. You're harassing a Jewish person or harassing me or whoever. Because why? Because we don't agree with you? That's your reasoning? And you think you're doing something like good for society? What have you actually done apart from 
be part of an internet mob and harass people? What have you done that's a net positive anybody in the world? And yeah, I too had like a similar thing. I was part of a mob. I was instrumental in a mob, actually. It was pretty brief, but it was bad. And I, like I had a dawning awakening one day, being part of this mob. And I noticed that it changed from, it was professional criticism of somebody who just books rubbish on Instagram and is just a, I think, objectively weird person. But you can think someone's objectively odd or weird and not like try and ruin their lives, right? That's insane. (laughs) And I found that the professional criticism turned into something super personal. And the second I saw that in myself and I was like, oh my fucking God, I'm taking pleasure in the destruction of this person. I dropped it like a hot potato. And then I wasn't very okay at the time. I'd lost, there were two bereavements and I had COVID really quite badly because I have an autoimmune disease. So I had a comorbidity that made it pretty bad. And I was in lockdown alone. And I think the combining factors and the pressure cooker environment, the internet, And yeah, really dark side of me came out that I wasn't very happy to meet or learn about. And I had to like look at myself in the mirror really and just say like, you need to course correct right now because this is bad. You really hurt someone. You're modeling to people. I did not like what I saw. So I'd have a similar process to you, like going through the mob. And then I was like, Jesus fucking Christ, that is, yeah, not what I don't want to be that person. And then, of course, the mob came for me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the biggest awakening is when you're like, oh, fuck, I'm not immune. I'm also fucked up. No one's immune. No one's immune. Yeah. I mean, it really is a cult. And anybody can be sucked into a cult. You know, that is straight up manipulation and abuse and all of that. What you experienced sounds like a traumatic experience. It was definitely traumatic exposure. Yeah. Traumatic exposure. Okay, talk to us about that. Like, do you believe everyone has trauma or everybody's been through something traumatic? Everyone has pain, okay? Because, like, you can't be a human being without having pain. Just being fucking alive is painful sometimes. Everyone has pain. And just because it's not trauma doesn't mean that it's nothing. It matters. It's it's pain. It's something that you live with. It sits on your heart. It weighs you down sometimes. It makes it difficult. Like, that doesn't make it trauma. Trauma is a very specific thing. Trauma is, so like, they've basically really fucked around with the definition of PTSD and obfuscated the language of trauma and they try and use language games to convince people who don't know any better. But a person that's traumatized has been through something like war or your house burnt down or you were in a violent car crash or you were in a relationship that was really, really abusive or something. So you have the traumatic exposure. So those things of the traumatic exposure or like me being harassed for unending harassment for months. So that's something that could develop into PTSD. It doesn't develop for everybody into PTSD. There are very specific factors. They're protective factors and they're precipitating factors. So the protective factors are if you're already resilient, you've already done some work on yourself, if you have supportive people around you, if you haven't been traumatized or abused or had any kind of you know difficult shit in your past already so those are all 
protective factors and those people tend not to go on and develop PTSD. And the people who do go on to develop PTSD tend to be, they didn't have any support around them. They'd never been through anything like this before. It shot their system so badly, it left an imprint. Or the, the thing that happened was so cataclysmically bad, like going in war or watching someone you love be killed or something that just upends your worldview. What happens for people who've been traumatized is the thing they didn't think could happen, happened. Complete helplessness. There was nothing I could do. That's why so many people get traumatized as children, because you're completely helpless and all you can do is receive this awful thing or just take it. So it's actually more complex. Trauma is pretty specific. The criteria for PTSD are pretty specific. Some of the criteria, there's a few. So of course you have first the traumatic exposure, so the thing that happened. And then you have the intrusive symptoms, which are upsetting memories, nightmares, flashbacks, physical reactions. So it's like your body is reacting as if the scary thing is happening in this moment. Complete panic, fight, flight, sweating, heart racing, wanting to puke. It's really horrible, actually. Avoiding any kind of external reminder. And generally, Something that's really common in people with PTSD, and it was the case for me as well, is that you just isolate. You just put yourself away from the world, from relationships, from everything, because that's the only time you actually feel safe. And you don't feel safe with people. Negative alterations to mood and to your thinking and a lot of self-blame, shame, all those kinds of things that we understand. So that's, I think this is what people focus on, is the negative alterations in cognition and mood and it's just like such a fundamental lack of understanding of psychology that does not mean it's PTSD of course things that happen to you impact you that's life (laughs) that doesn't mean it's trauma alteration in arousal so we call arousal like your physical responsiveness is arousal or sort of like if your heart rate's gone up and your thoughts are racing, you'd say that's activation or sympathetic arousal of the nervous system. So your reactivity, irritability, aggression, destructive behaviour, hypervigilance, very sort of heightened startle response, not being able to sleep because you're constantly stuck in that panic, I'm not safe, I'm about to be killed and eaten or whatever kind of mode. And then how long it lasts, it needs to last longer than a month, and then how much of an impairment it is. And I found that like for most people with PTSD, it's like being disabled. But I used to almost have no time that was actually functional and usable. But you lose a couple of days a week to it often. It is like living with a chronic disability. So this is also why I talk about it so much, because it's so insulting to people with PTSD, who literally it's like you're living with a disability and everyone around you says, I have trauma too because mommy didn't buy me a pony. And it's like, come on. It's like the boy who cried wolf has become the social baseline. Or in this fetishization of feelings, it's as if people's feelings are only taken seriously if you're kind of histrionic about them. So people that you don't like, they can't just be an asshole. He has to be like a narcissist. Or your boss was rude to you, your boss was abusive. You went through something difficult, it wasn't just, you know, an upsetting thing, it has to be trauma. 
like we just overstate things to the point that like we're making these words meaningless and that's actually a very bad thing because you need to know when actual trauma happens or when actual abuse happens or someone actually is a narcissist and then also dissociative symptoms so again all of these things it's like people grab hold of one thing which is why you can't diagnose yourself from a meme. You need somebody who actually understands the whole constellation and can assess you properly, who might be able to diagnose you. So there's a lot there. It's not just as simple as a bad thing happened and I'm still upset about it, so I have trauma. Yeah, I had an English professor who one time yelled at us. He was like, stop fucking using the word awesome. Your sandwich is not awesome. What word are you going to use when your first child is born if you just used awesome to describe your sandwich? (laughs) And I will never forget that in my writing. I hope that I will never use awesome. I do overuse amazing. I'm very guilty of that. But I think the flip side, there's like the negative and the positive. The positive isn't as probably damaging as it is with overusing words like trauma, PTSD, panic attacks, right? People are like, I had a panic attack because my Starbucks was late. There's definitely a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. On one hand, you kind of think, yeah, it's like we've said, the issues with it. On the other hand, it's like, do you really want to spend all your time policing the world? They're going to say what they're going to say. Every field with the mainstream understanding of most specializations is wrong. And that's why you have people who actually specialize in those things so they don't get it wrong and you can't police everybody and social media for example facebook was meant to be just a way for university students to connect and look what it's become so things become their own animal and you can't control and police everything and that's very neurotic so you have to kind of let people be but at the same time those of us who do know better why are we doing it as well that's what i find really quite interesting and The trauma thing, obviously, that's personal to me. And I think it's actually really important because I think it's very related to the coddling trend and the self-esteem parenting and all the things that have led to the issues that we're dealing with now socially. And the mental health stuff overall, like taking the language of serious mental health issues like OCD, that one's used a lot, or depression. People who call themselves mental health advocates and use hashtags like break the stigma, and then you appropriate the language of other people's suffering and use it for what clicks, likes, so that you can make what happened to you sound worse than it was. What's the goal? Like, what are we doing here? I mean, I'm a therapist. I like stopping and picking up rocks and looking underneath them. So, yeah. Mm. You've given me so much to think about as someone in the, I guess, social media, mental health space too. And I want to run an idea by you. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, by the way, for staying past our allotted time. Um, I hope we could take five more minutes to kind of summarize everything I've learned and we've talked about here. I did a podcast episode, I think it just published today. So it's episode 115. And I titled it, learn the difference. And I had this theory. I don't know. I just woke up with it one day and I want to run it by you as a therapist. I get all these questions, right? And most of them are phrased usually as such. I know that 
dieting isn't good for me, or I know that I should love my body, but there's this part of me that feels like X. So it's always this, like, like we're always grappling with contradictions. Mm -hmm. And like you just said, you know, we don't want (laughs) to, we're not going to over-police people's language. And if somebody's going to call something crazy, then that that doesn't mean they're insulting people who are dealing with mental health. Sometimes you can just call something crazy and it doesn't have to be anything. Yeah, there's way too much policing already. Yeah. And at the same time, we can be intentional with language, especially language that really, really hurts people and affects people and is necessary for diagnostics and for us to move forward. Yeah. And I woke up with this idea that I call like well, I just realized that life, so much of life and everything that I do in therapy is about learning the difference. Hmm. And you did this amazing post on March 29th where you wrote, welcome to the dialectic. I don't know what dialectic means. <laughs> well, it sort of means like, like two things that aren't necessarily complementary. They can be contradictory where they both can be true. Mm. It's not either or, it's both and. That's kind of a... yes. And so, and that's my thing about like learning the difference because you wrote some examples, I'm assuming a dialectic is take up space, have courage and be bold and learn how to not suck all the oxygen out of the room. Mm-hmm. Like learn to read the room and shut the fuck up. That's right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and you wrote value yourself, have self-respect and strong boundaries and understand you are not the main character of the universe. Mm-hmm. You don't owe anyone anything, and close relationships don't do well with this kind of attitude. Mm-hmm. It wasn't your fault, and if you don't deal with it, who will? Which to me is like, it wasn't your fault, but it might be your responsibility to mm-hmm. yep. address what's hurting you. Ask for what you want clearly, and your needs aren't the only ones that matter. You teach people how to treat you, and how you treat other people matters too. And I love this because I just feel like it succinctly summarizes some of the things that we grapple with in the mental health industry. Mm-hmm. And when I woke up with this idea, I'm like, life is just about learning not just the difference, but learning your difference. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? Like, if you could have one of your posts up on a billboard, would it be this one? I'm, <laughs> I phrased the question in the way that I wanted to answer. <laughs> Yay, Mary. After all that talk about cognitive dissonance. Anywho, I'm just wondering what you think of that. When you say, don't just learn the difference, learn your difference, what do you mean by your difference? Like, instead of policing how other people should or shouldn't live their lives, Mm -hmm. learn what healthy is for you. Learn what self-confidence is for you. Learn what teaching people how to treat you, setting boundaries for you. For me, it's like, learn what kind of wedding you want to have, Mm -hmm. you know, that's like respectful of like all the things that encompass you, including my culture and my family and all that. And like, learn, like, obviously it's all about learning. But I was thinking like, people say the cliche life is about learning. And I'm like, well, what are we learning? And a lot of the times we're learning differences, right? We're learning contradictions. We're just learning these things that, like you said, exist at the same time and Mm -hmm. can both be true Mm -hmm. I think you've hit the nail on the head there really beautifully actually because yeah the way you describe that learn your difference that's kind of my whole philosophy in a way is that you can't police other people so learn to manage yourself I can't tell everybody to use trauma language properly but I'm fucking well gonna do it (laughs) and I'll say what I think Mm -hmm. it's true as well 
but I'm not going to come to, you know, to your page and start scolding you about it or whatever. Well, it's inspiring to me because in using language properly and perhaps sharing the thought process behind why I, you know, stopped using trauma, like literally since following you, like I don't use big T or little T trauma in my posts anymore. Whereas not that it was a regular thing for me, but it was definitely something I unconsciously subscribe to. It gets normalized. And then you just, you hear these words. And again, like if you ask 20 people, 20 of your followers, what does trauma mean? You'll probably get 20 different definitions, but it just becomes kind of part of the parlance and we don't think about it. And sometimes the way we use words is really especially in this area with like mental health stuff, it's really kind of cringe. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Do what's right for you. You don't have to, just because, you know, your relationship influencer is telling you to do this doesn't mean that's what your relationship needs. And just because you're following me and I'm saying what I'm saying doesn't mean that's right for you. You need to listen to yourself. I put a post up a couple of days ago, kind of encapsulating what it can be like looking at. I'll just read it out to you because that might be the most effective way of communicating it. Would this be your billboard post? I don't know which one would be my billboard post. I'm going to have to think about this. It's hard because you have so much gold. I don't know. I really don't know. So the post says, love yourself, hug yourself, control yourself, get disciplined, grow up, hustle, no fuck hustle culture, work harder, but don't burn out, trauma, 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 have some gratitude, no, that's toxic positivity, be assertive, but don't be a bitch, safe spaces, get out of your comfort zone. And then it cuts off and it says at some point you have to tune the shit out and start listening to yourself. Mm. And I think that touches on your definition of your difference. Yes. We could carry on talking for another two hours, I think, but just very quickly, that's the other issue that's like a problem in our culture is the external locus of control. So you have people Mm -hmm. who are like entitled, angry, self-righteous and helpless and disempowered and listening to other people, but angry and rageful about it. Do you know there's this whole thing going on? But yeah. Yes. Yes. And external locus of control, if I remember from Psych 101, it's like literally one of the first vocab words that you learn, what the difference between an internal locus of control and an external. It's definitely, it seems correlated with coddling, seems correlated with the learned helplessness epidemic. And I think people are being conditioned into having external locuses of control. Where can people find you, work with you? Do you have any workshops or classes people can find me on instagram and on twitter and it's the same handle in both places it's my name hopefully you can stick that in the description and i am putting up my Substack either tonight or tomorrow so you can find me there and that's where i'm going to actually flesh out some ideas and talk more at length in a way that instagram doesn't allow and i have been running a membership i'm actually conflicted about whether I'm going to continue it because I actually I don't know if I'm a course person and I don't know whether I don't think I like selling don't think I like any of that stuff so um, I'd hold off (laughs) I feel you well I know half your comments every time you post are please write a book Siru when are you gonna write a book so (laughs) if you ever do write a book or offer anything juicy then members of your sub stack would probably be the first to know about it yeah probably yeah 
I'll definitely link that in the description too, along with your Instagram. Amazing. Thanks so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you and it's gone so quickly. Likewise. You're just such a happy, smiley gem. I just love talking to you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really inspired by you and challenged, which is part of what makes me inspired. And I hope that we can just continue to have more of these conversations and have a little more critical thinking and open-mindedness, which people love to say they are, but when it comes down to it, (laughs) sometimes we don't, we don't walk the talk. So thank you so much for your time and your extra generous time (laughs) that you've given us. (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, self-lovers, one last little thing before we farewell. If you've been enjoying the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave a a review. (laughs) I was going to cut that out, but we'll just keep it in there. If you could leave a review on Apple or rate the show on Spotify. Your feedback helps the podcast grow. And as someone whose love language is words of affirmation, your kind words mean the world to me. Just search the show on Apple, scroll all the way down where you'll see a place to leave a review. (laughs) And if you're listening on Spotify, on the show's homepage, you'll see a little star. And if you click on that, there'll be a pop-up box where you can send in your rating. Thank you so much for helping me spread the gift of self-love. And speaking of the gift of self-love, that is the title of my book. You can pick it up at any bookstore, including Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, small indie bookstores. All those links can be found at maryscupoftea.com slash book. Thank you all so much for learning and growing and continuing to be on this self-love journey. It's truly an honor to be here with you. I love you and I will talk to you next time. And please, please don't forget to leave a review. (laughs) Bye.